This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. After a historic summit earlier this year, President Trump declared there was no longer a nuclear threat from North Korea. Now, though, it appears that country is expanding a missile base. According to NPR, that base may be capable of housing long-range missiles that could, in theory, hit the United States. U.S. Senator from Colorado Cory Gardner sits on the Foreign Relations Committee and chairs the subcommittee on East Asia. Senator, welcome back to the program. Hey, thank you very much for having me. A second summit between President Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un is planned for early next year. I wonder if you think that's a good idea, given that North Korea seems to say one thing but actually do another. I, I just met with a special envoy uh, to North Korea, Steve Began, in my office uh, uh, and had that very same question for him. I remain skeptical of a second summit uh, that is just a, a meeting to rehash old promises that haven't been fulfilled. Uh, and I think that's where we have to provide oversight and make sure that this isn't just a, a, you know, a chance to play patty cake in meetings with the North Koreans, but we actually get some results and concrete evidence of steps toward denuclearization. Is the Trump administration naive here? You know, you've got people like Steve Began who have been very heavily involved with North Korea for decades. Uh, you have John Bolton, who has been heavily involved in North Korea. I don't think they're naive, but uh, there's an old saying that a frog sometimes doesn't notice it's boiling when it's already in the pot. And so are they noticing the boil around them where North Korea is slipping back into their old, we're just going to say enough to, to get you to go along with this, and then pretty soon they find themselves boiling, uh, meaning that North Korea is just back to its old ways. So I think there's a real risk and concern that I have in that respect. Do I hear Cory Gardner telling the White House, I would advise you not to move forward with the second summit? Uh, I have told the White House I'm very concerned about this second summit. I've told the White House again, and I related it directly to Mr. Began, that if this is not about denuclearization and concrete steps that we see toward denuclearization, they shouldn't do it. Let's turn to the Mueller-Russia probe. A key but short-lived member of the Trump administration has given Mueller, quote, substantial assistance The special counsel, therefore, is recommending no jail time for former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. What exactly Flynn offered up is unclear, but it's an important development, apparently, in an investigation that the president could seek to derail. Outgoing Arizona Senator Jeff Flake has called for a Mueller protection bill. The Senate majority leader says that would be a futile gesture. Do you agree that such legislation is futile? Or do you think it would send an important signal to the White House? Well, I think what sends an important signal to the White House is uh, our support in the Senate for the Mueller investigation. Uh, and uh, that transcends any legislation. Uh, I haven't heard a senator yet who's opposed to the Mueller investigation. This is critically important that this investigation be completed. Uh, it needs to be completed. Uh, I've said that many times and will continue to support the investigation. I think it's in the best interest of the president. Uh, if the president believes that he did nothing wrong, then the Mueller investigation will find that. And uh, if there is something wrong, the American people need to know that. And so that's why I think this is so important. Why not put the uh, weight behind it with some sort of legislation? Well, I I think the weight behind it is the fact that uh, we're not playing politics here. And I'm concerned that others want to play politics. I want to see this investigation carried through. Look, if the, if the president wants to disband the Mueller investigation, uh, if he wants to find out what it feels like to touch the sun, uh, he, can, he can disband the Mueller investigation. It's not a good thing. Uh, so you, you don't support any legislative action in that regard. If President Trump moved to fire Bob Mueller, do you think the president should face some sort of consequence? What would that be? 
Well, I, again, I think if you want to find out what it feels like to touch the sun, uh, take that direction, take that action. Uh, the president uh, has not done this. He will not do this, and he should not do this. I, I wonder why you wouldn't want a Mueller protection bill. Well, I think I've been very clear. Uh, some people want to play politics. Uh, this investigation needs to continue, and it's in the best interest of this country for this. I'm not about playing politics. I'm about getting results. You think that a Mueller protection bill is playing politics then? I've, asked, I've answered the question about my support for this Mueller investigation. It must continue. Let's talk about Saudi Arabia. Your colleague in the Senate, Lindsey Graham, wrote in the Wall Street Journal this week, it is important for Congress to signal that there is no excuse for recent Saudi behavior. Graham is speaking of the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, which was apparently approved by the highest echelons of the Saudi government. Uh, Of course, he's also referring to the alleged slaughter of civilians in the war in Yemen. First off, do you accept the CIA's take that the crown prince was responsible for Khashoggi's murder? Oh, I have not yet had the chance to receive a briefing, as have, uh, nor has many members of, of the Senate received a briefing from the CIA. I have had a chance to speak with Senator Graham and Senator Corker, who did receive the briefing, uh, and uh, continues to point uh, fingers uh, very clearly at the Crown Prince. There's no exculpatory evidence that has been put forward. Uh, there's a reason for that. It doesn't appear that there is exculpatory evidence. Uh, and so we should hold uh, MBS, uh, the Crown Prince, accountable for this. Uh, that's why I've supported uh, investigations, uh, sanctioning suspension of our one, two, three nuclear agreement with Saudi Arabia uh, and continued uh, efforts to show what has happened to the horrific murder. Debate, I understand, could begin Monday on a measure to buck the Trump administration and force withdrawal of U.S. support for the Saudi-led war in Yemen. Uh, the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, Bob Corker, is quoted in The Washington Examiner saying, my guess is it's got more than 51 votes. Uh, Would such a measure have your vote, Senator Gardner? Well, I'd have to look at the measure again that finally comes forward. I think there's a lot of talk right now and moving pieces in the negotiation. Look, what we can't do is weaken our efforts against terrorism, al-Qaeda, ISIS, and the Iranian-backed Houthis and others who wish to destabilize not only the Middle East, but the United States. We can't confuse the actions that MBS took with actions that would embolden terrorists. And I think that's a very, very big concern and should be a concern of every single one of my colleagues. The Secretary of State is concerned, was concerned that any such action could take away the negotiations taking place, I believe, starting today in Europe with the Houthis. Yes. Uh, And uh, you know what? We need to have those negotiations continue. And if the United States were to do something that would embolden the Iranian-backed Houthis, they might walk away from the table and the conflict in Yemen would continue. Uh, But let's be clear. Uh, There are some who would like to uh, enable, uh, through their actions, politics that would result in an empowered ISIS, al-Qaeda, and Iran. You you think that that could be an effect of using the instrument of saying, we're withdrawing U.S. support of this war in Yemen? Uh, You have ISIS, al-Qaeda, and uh, the the Iranians who have flooded the zone in Yemen. Mm. Uh, We know what they want to do, and I I will not empower them. Some domestic issues now. Student loan debt. Nationally, it's increased by more than 150 percent over the last decade. The average debt load in Colorado is $27,000. You've introduced a bill that allows employers to help pay off their workers' student loans up to $10,000 a year tax-free. You say it's based on a 401k model. Just briefly, what kind of difference do you hope it'll make? 
I hope this is a big difference. When I go around Colorado and I meet with the businesses, employers, one of the first things they tell me is they need help finding and attracting and retaining a workforce. Uh, and when I talk to college students and recent graduates, they talk about the fact that their student loan is keeping them from starting a family when they would like to or from buying a house because they have to pay the student loan and can't afford the down payment on a house. So this is a, a private sector solution. Businesses are already making contributions to, uh, in some cases, to employees to help pay off their student loans. Well, let's just get Washington out of the way then. Uh, so this solution says there's no tax on this event. The business isn't going to pay or collect a tax on it, and the employee isn't going to pay uh, or collect a tax on this. Uh, this is a way to put all of that money, up to $10,000 a year, into student loans, allowing them to save for retirement, allowing them to start that family, allowing them to buy that home that they would otherwise defer. In Colorado, Republicans took a beating in the midterms. State government is now entirely under Democratic control. Republican Congressman Mike Kaufman attributes his defeat in the House specifically to Coloradans wanting to hold President Trump accountable. Senator, you're up for re-election in 2020. Do you change anything about how you approach governing after the election? I think if you look at Colorado, uh, Colorado is an independent state. This is a state that is a third Republican, a third Democrat, a third unaffiliated, a few more unaffiliated now. Uh, it's a state that defeated uh, tax increases across the board. It defeated an anti-oil and gas provision. Uh, just a couple of years ago, it overwhelmingly defeated the universal health care ballot initiative. Uh, so it remains an independent state. What I'm going to approach uh, the next uh, several years with uh, as we get ready for uh, whatever comes next, making sure that I'm looking out for the results of the Colorado people, the American people, uh, doing everything that we can to engage this country in success. Whether it's Barack Obama, George Bush, or Donald Trump, our president needs to be successful for this country to be successful. And I think that's a bipartisan concern. Senator, thanks for your time. Hey, thank you very much, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Republican Senator from Colorado, Cory Gardner, we spoke earlier this morning. And then there was one. Denver Public Schools has advanced just one name for its top job. She is Susana Cordova. If chosen, she'll succeed longtime superintendent Tom Bosberg. Cordova is currently deputy superintendent for DPS, the state's largest district. She is a graduate of Abraham Lincoln High in Denver and is also taught in the city. When Bosberg took some extended time off, Cordova served as acting superintendent. And Susanna, welcome to the program. Thanks. Great to be here. According to DPS, at least two other candidates who got second interviews withdrew, in essence, leaving you as the last woman standing. A final decision expected December 17th. Let's say you get this position and had carte blanche authority to change whatever you wanted. That isn't necessarily the case. There's a school board and That's all. Right. But what, right. what, what would be the changes you'd make? Sure. Um, so, you know, I'm really fortunate to have had the time that I've spent inside the Denver Public Schools. And so I, I have a really good sense of things that we do well, um, things that we don't do so well, things that are really valuable and that we should really focus on and maintain, um, things that I think are probably less important um, and that we can afford to think differently about. And so one of the most important things I think that um, I would like to do coming into the job right away is to really make it clear to our teachers how important, how valuable they are and how critical it's going to be for us to put more compensation um, into their base pay. Uh, it's something that um, we've been working on with our teachers right now, and we're in the middle of negotiations. And I think it's really important that we send that message right off the bat. More money into base pay. 
of course, a measure on the statewide ballot in the midterms to raise money for schools failed. Uh, that would have obviously meant a significant chunk of change for DPS. Where do you find the money to do yeah, that? Yeah, and so that's connected to something else that I think um, I'm really well positioned and poised to do quickly, which is to look for efficiencies and slim down our central office, uh, something that I think um, I've worked in our central office for a long time. uh, And I have a good sense of where's the highest value um, and where can we afford uh, to have a greater focus um, by eliminating um, some areas or slimming them down. Um, And then I've also got some ideas around how we can get to uh, a place where we have more funding for uh, pay for you know our teachers and other employees without there being uh, significant cuts, but really through some efficiency. So one idea that um, I, we've been talking about is uh, there's a lot of evidence that high school students should start later. In the day. In the day, yeah. That that the the brain science tells us that. You know, high school students' body clocks are wired to stay up late at night. I've got a high school student myself in DPS, um, and it's really hard to, to get her to go to sleep at night. It's equally hard to get her up in the morning. Or more um, hard. Uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, and um, if we did something like move to a later start time for all of our high schools and do some standardization of our bell times, we actually could save significant funding probably in the millions. Um, really? Where would that save come from? It would come through standardizing bell times, having more efficiency in how we run our transportation routes, while at the same time allowing us to think about a later start time for our high school students and earlier start time for our elementary school students. So it's ideas like that that I'd really like to explore in terms of how we could get more funding, both for compensation as well as create a solution to a problem that we have with our high school students already. Millions of dollars in savings. That's surprising. Uh, Just briefly to the front office, to headquarters at DPS, are you saying that there are simply too many bodies at district offices? Would you do some trimming of actual employees? Yeah. And so, you know, I think we have great people who work across all of our teams But you've called that inefficient. At the same time, I think that we can have greater focus on the most important work that we're doing. You know, our board has laid out a strategic plan that is heavily focused on a small set of priorities and really looking at our central office to ensure that we're tightly aligned to those priorities, I think would give us the opportunity to think about how we can slim down central office um, to really focus on those areas exclusively from the center. Okay, just briefly on teacher compensation, the teachers union says if an agreement on pro comp, this is the method by which DPS teachers are compensated. If a deal isn't reached by January 18th, They'll take a strike vote. Uh, So there is the potential for that looming. What do you see as your relationship with the union? Yeah. So, you know, another thing I think that I bring as a real um, asset is I grew up inside the district, you know, outside of my family and my marriage. All of my closest relationships are with people who are practicing teachers in DPS. In fact, my speed dial, half the people are teachers. Um, and so I, I, I deeply appreciate value and understand the complexity 
of what it is to be a teacher in our district. Um, I've worked in collaboration with our teachers and our union for a long time. And, you know, my commitment to our teachers would be that I would come to the table with an open disposition about honest dialogue and back and forth negotiations so that we can get to a point where we all feel satisfied that we've got a, a an agreement that people can feel good about. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with the finalist, the finalist for the top job at Denver Public Schools. She is Susana Cordova. Uh, you mentioned your marriage. I just want to note that your husband is a banker who specializes in public finance. His online bio says he's one of the leading investment bankers in the charter school movement. His firm, D.A. Davidson, does a lot of work in Colorado. If your household income is somewhat connected to charter schools, does it make you more likely to support them? Yeah. <clears throat> Interesting question. Uh, you know, I've spent my entire career in the Denver Public Schools working to support district schools that are managed by the Denver Public Schools. And so, you know, in my household, uh, we have half of the marriage that's been completely focused on district-managed public schools and half of the marriage that's worked on creating options for families and children across the country um, in charter schools. And, you know, frankly, I think that's really reflective of the work that our community has really appreciated. We have families in Denver that have in the same family kids in one grade level in a charter school and a different grade level in a district school and vice versa. Um, And I think that's one of the things people really appreciate about Denver. Do you ever have to recuse yourself? Yeah. So my husband has not done any business with the Denver Public Schools um, since I have been the deputy superintendent. In fact, I think the last time there was any um, work from his firm directly with the Denver Public Schools and the school board was in 2005. At that time, you know, I had a job in the central office overseeing literacy curriculum. Um, And his company has made the commitment to to do no work in Denver with Denver Public Schools or any Denver charter schools if I'm selected as superintendent. Uh, How much input have you sought from parents as part of this process? I know that you have a town hall coming up uh, in which parents, I think, will be able to ask you questions. But heretofore, what have you heard from them and have they changed your mind about anything? Sure. So, um, you know, before I actually applied for the position, I decided that something that would be really important would be for me to get out and talk to a lot of people, including parents. Um, talked to community members, talked to community leaders, talked to principals. Um, And I think I heard a lot of what uh, the school board heard in their community engagement process. Which was? Which is uh, people want to be included and have a seat at the table in decisions that have impact on their schools and their communities. And they don't feel that and now? They, they don't always What's feel like that's, that's the case. I think uh, we got lots. I personally heard lots of feedback, and I think our board heard lots of feedback that people have very significant concerns about gaps in achievement um, for our students um, and that they don't feel like we've done enough to address that. Um, I think we've heard really clearly that people want to be able to have two-way dialogue that at times it has felt like community engagement in the Denver Public Schools has been one direction from the district to the community. Uh, You know, I 
I pride myself on being a listener, and that's something that I would bring to the table as a superintendent uh, with the community. Specifically to the idea of the achievement gaps, the district has failed to significantly raise the test scores of Black and Latino students and those from low-income families. You wear the hat now of of number two at the district, so don't you bear some responsibility for the problems you hope to fix now as number one? Sure, uh, yeah, and I think um, it's important to note that there are a couple things about that. We actually have significantly raised the level of achievement of our Black, our Latino, our low-income, our English language learners. We've also raised the level of achievement of our white students and our higher-income students. Um, And in many cases, it's increased faster. So So the gap maintains in a way. Everybody's getting better, uh uh, but um, the gap is still large. And in fact, when you look at our low income, our black, our Latino students, um, and you see the amount of growth that we've made with those students, we're actually doing better than almost all of the other districts in terms of the amount of growth that we're making with those populations across the state. Across the state. Yeah. That's where you're making yeah. the contrast. What is the biggest difference between you and Tom Bosberg? The man um, who has the the job now. Sure, yeah. Well, and so, um, you know, Tom's a great friend of mine. We are not at all alike. Uh, part of the reason I think we worked well together is because we are very different. I'm I'm much more of a listener. I'm much more collaborative. Uh, you know, I'm a woman of color. I grew up um, in a very low-income family. Um, my, neither one of my parents went to college. My dad didn't graduate from high school. Um, and that has completely colored my life experience, what has motivated me and uh, drives me uh, to do the work that I do. And, you know, that's a very different experience than he had. Are you saying that you are more collaborative and a better listener than he is? Oh, I, I think I am. Yes, definitely. Okay. There were a number of scandals at Denver high schools in the last couple of years. In some cases, principals were let go, held accountable for wrongdoing. In other cases, principals stayed in their jobs. I think of Denver School of the Arts. Why is it that children had to suffer in emotionally abusive environments, even after years of complaining before the district took action and and conducted an investigation? I mean, even now there are parents complaining of a lack of responsiveness from that school's administration. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think our high schools are incredibly complex, um, you know, places. Uh, It's really important, uh, something that we stress with our um, school leaders and with our teachers is how important it is to do two things, to maintain positive relationships with kids and set high standards for kids. And I think uh, when we have um, had incidents Uh, like the ones that you've just referenced, Mm -hmm. we get out of alignment around either, you know, the high expectation side at the expense of relationship. And frankly, you know, when we think about the previous topic around achievement, sometimes we get out of whack on the we're working on relationships and we don't have high expectations. It, It is always a matter of how do we do both of those things so that we can create the right environment for kids to feel welcomed, safe, able to learn and have high expectations and push kids not at the expense, one at the expense of the other. It's that balance, I think I hear you saying, That's between right. rigor and sanity. Uh, it, does that emanate from the principal? Does that emanate from the superintendent? Like, where is the culture shift that has sure. to happen? You know, I, I actually think it's all of us. When when you think about how culture is created across an organization, it's everybody. It starts at the top for sure. Um, but it is it really is everybody inside the school. It's the 
principal working with teachers on setting those expectations. Um, I think it is really important that we're responsive to parents when they raise concerns. And, you know, when we haven't been responsive, we need to take ownership for that. We need to make amends for that. We need to uh, take the right actions to put in place improvements um, to be able to do that. Uh, you know, I think there are times when we do a better job of that and times when we don't do as good a job. And, you know, we we need to continuously improve. Thank you for being with us. Great. Thank you. Susana Cordova is the finalist to replace Tom Bosberg as superintendent of Denver Public Schools. DPS will host a community meeting this coming Tuesday at George Washington High School, where people can ask Cordova questions. A decision on the hire is expected December 17th. When you have burning questions about the state, we find the answers through Colorado Wonders. And today's question is of the automotive variety. I was wondering what's going on with the Volkswagens that have been parked down by the Pikes Peak Raceway south of Colorado Springs. I've noticed that several of them have been moved recently, and I was wondering what happened to them. That's Doug Villers of Pueblo. He drives past that flotilla of VWs several times a week on his commute to Fountain. CPR's Haley Sanchez looked into this. Hi, Haley. Hi, Ryan. And before we get to Doug's question, why are the Volkswagens parked there in the first place? Yeah, I mean, at first glance, they look like they're totally normal vehicles. There's no dents in them, nothing wrong. It's not a hail thing, in other words. No, yeah, definitely not. Golfs, Passats, Audis. Remember back in 2015 when the federal government caught Volkswagen cheating on its emission tests? Yes. These are those cars that Volkswagen was forced to buy back as part of a settlement. And they're two and three liter diesel vehicles just sitting there, either waiting to be repaired and sold back or they're scrapped. So this law is just one of 37 that Volkswagen has across the country where they're storing these vehicles. There's one in Detroit, and that's at the old Pontiac Silverdome football stadium. And then there's another one in California at an old decommissioned Air Force base. How many cars has Volkswagen bought back? By November 18th, the company paid more than $8 billion to buy back more than 360,000 diesel vehicles. So there's quite a few out there that need storage. And as part of the settlement, Volkswagen had until June of next year to fix or take off the road 85% of its two-liter vehicles. So they fulfilled that requirement back in May of this year. And the company must also do the same for its three-liter vehicles, or it could face more fines. And the deadline for that is November 30th of next year, and they're on track to meet that. What does the Pikes Peak International Raceway have to do with all of this? The raceway, they own the 200-acre lot that these Volkswagens are actually sitting on, and it's just north of the racetrack. Back in the heyday when the racetrack was going, this lot was used as overflow parking for them. So in January of 2017, PPIR, they were granted a temporary use permit. By this is El- the racetrack. Right. Yeah. They were granted this permit by El Paso County, and that was to allow them to temporarily store several thousand vehicles there. But I've learned now as I've been working on answering Doug's question that that permit actually expires at the end of this month. What happens then? I talked with Nina Ruiz, and she's a planner with El Paso County. Here's what she told me. We don't anticipate renewing that temporary use. If they wish to continue the use in the future, they would need to submit for a variance of use if they're going to continue that in El Paso County, and that would require going through a public hearing process. So I reached out to the raceway to find out if they're planning to submit a new application, and their manager said that they leased the lot out and gave me an email address to contact, and I never heard back from them. I also tried reaching out to the owner there and didn't hear back from him either. A spokesman with the Volkswagen Group of America also did not comment. 
Um, instead, they sent me a statement only describing why the cars were parked there in the first place. So it could be that the cars are being removed slowly before the end of the year, but it's still very unclear. Has Nina Ruiz with El Paso County heard from the racetrack? She told me she reached out to them to let them know that their permit will expire soon. And when we last talked, she had not heard back from them. She also told me if the raceway wants to continue storing the vehicles there, they have to start a new application process that would take at least four months to complete. So they would be in violation if they continued keeping the cars parked there with El Paso County. The deadline is looming. What happens on January 1st? Where will the buybacks be sent, all those cars? This is still not clear. I spoke with a VW dealer in Aurora. He says that when he gets the buybacks, he receives them, they're loaded up onto a truck, and they're still sent straight to the racetrack. Once these repairs are made to the Volkswagens to get them in compliance, are people interested in buying them back? Oh, yes, definitely. The VW dealer totally told me that. He says there's a huge market out there for them. People are really into these turbo diesel vehicles, so they have a good resale value as well. Despite the controversy. Right, yeah. Of course, that could be him trying to up the price. (laughs) Of course. And use our airwaves to do so, says the skeptic (laughs) in me. So Doug, the gentleman who asked this question, says the lot now looks about a third empty. Could the expiring permit be a sign the Volkswagens are going away? It could be. I looked at this Google satellite images when I first started looking at this last week. Yeah. And I looked at it again today, and there actually is more space in that lot, fewer cars there. But it looks like we're just going to have to wait and see. Thanks, Haley. Thank you. Haley Sanchez is a fellow with CPR News. She answered a Colorado Wonders question about the fleet of VWs and Audis parked between Pueblo and Colorado Springs. It sure sounds like their time is up. What do you want to know about in Colorado? Throw us your questions at CPR.org. Click Colorado Wonders. Uh-huh. What you do and what you don't. Uh-huh. What you will and what you won't. Uh-huh. When the Denver Zoo's popular polar bears moved out of state recently, officials said they were playing matchmaker, hoping new homes for the bears would mean new mates. Another significant factor was the health of the zoo's two grizzly bears. Those bears will soon move into the larger enclosure left empty by the polar bears. Brian Acone is the Denver Zoo's Senior Vice President for Animal Care and Conservation. And hi again, Brian. Good morning, Ryan. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. Let's start by talking about a U.S. Department of Agriculture inspection from March of last year. It found the enclosure where the grizzlies live is so crowded they were showing signs of stress. Pacing, head swinging were two of the behaviors they pointed out. Uh, that inspection document, I'll say, was first reported by the Colorado Sun. How, how badly is the lack of space affecting the grizzlies? Well, the, the grizzlies are doing very well. It's um, the space that we currently have. It's our old Bear Mountain exhibit that has existed since the early 1900s. Uh, is not something that we would have built today, but there's a lot more to you know the care and um, health of a, a grizzly bear that's that's beyond just space. So they're they're doing well, um, you know. But just like everybody, uh, any of us or other animals, you can have days that are good and you can have days that uh, that you have more stress. And so I think at that at that day that the USDA was here, that certainly she saw something. But things that we're aware of and that we're always that we're always working on from the care perspective of the animals. So they're doing great. Um, but we are excited to move them into a, a new habitat. It's been more than a year since that report, and I'll say there's no further mention of the problem in latter USDA inspections. But you said that this was built, gosh, in the early 1900s. That's surprising. What is what is unideal about the enclosure? Like if you were building it anew today, what are the things you'd change about it for the grizzlies? 
Well, uh, you know, really what you're going to see in their, new, in their new habitat is that there's going to be um, a lot more natural surface. So the, it's primarily a concrete base. They've got a, a few areas that are natural surface that they can dig in, but grizzlies really do like to dig around. And so we've provided that in their current housing at the Bear Mountain exhibit. But the bulk of the area is going to be natural substrate in their new area. Um, the, uh, they'll have a nice pool that they can swim in, and um, it's going to be more space as well. So the overall footprint of the space is going to be good. We're going to have um, easier access to them as far as their um, the animal care staff and being able to interact with them. They're going to be able to have uh, a much close, uh, much closer encounter with our guests that they can learn about and you know, really see these guys face to face where we've got a, um, a wall where we can do training and, and, and guests can be right there with us as we're doing that um, on the front side of the exhibit. So it's going to be it's going to be great from a multitude of perspectives, um, and it's just going to be a, uh, an enhancement of what we already do in their current habitat. So what I hear you saying is that it's just nice to have softer ground for the bears. Yeah, they like to dig, and um, the uh, and it's something that you know they do in the areas that we provided in their current habitat. It's just the bulk of the habitat is going to have um, have that substrate where they can dig and, and dig in a lot more areas and roll around in the dirt. You talked about grizzlies having good days and grizzlies having bad days. How do you differentiate a good day from a bad day? Well, you know, we we have staff here uh, taking care of these animals seven days a week, 365 days a year, um, even th- even through the uh, nighttime as well. And so we're always watching them and seeing what they're doing. And um, so we keep an eye on, you know, we've got people here who are animal behaviorists, who that's what they specialize in is um, ensuring that animals um, are, are healthy, both physically and mentally. We've got an amazing animal care staff. We've got, you know, over 1,200 years of care experience. And so we're always monitoring them. Um, to make sure that, that they're having a great and healthy life. And what are signs you look for, once again? Um, that as far as them doing good or signs that we might be concerned about? Both. Uh, well, we want to see natural behaviors, that they're digging, that they're, that they're sleeping, that they're eating normally, that they're, um, that they're active in the, in the times that they should be, um, that they're mentally engaged. And so we give them a lot of things, what we call enrichment, which are things meant to stimulate uh, natural behaviors. So, um, you know, they naturally would forage, and so that they're interested in those, and we give them a ball that's got um, um, food or treats embedded into it, and then they have to work out how to get that out. It's the same way that they would have to work out if they, you know, came across something that was buried or something in a tree that they might have to um, to dig out or figure out how to get to. And so really trying to stimulate those natural behaviors. And then uh, if they're acting sluggish, if they're, you know, they, they seem off in the same way that they just don't seem as alert or they, they don't seem as interested mm. um, in working with their keepers, sort of similar things that you would look at if you think about uh, your own kids um, where you're going, huh, they, you know, they may not necessarily be able to express exactly what might be happening, especially when they're much younger. But you notice, you know, little nuances in their behaviors, those sorts of things that you're picking up on, and then you try and figure out what might be causing that and how you might address that. I like that you're describing the essential uh, bear Kong there. Uh, just briefly <laughs> before we go, how much did the move of the polar bears out of the Denver Zoo, how much did that actually have to do with creating a space for the grizzlies versus finding new mates for those polar bears? Like, just give me a rough percentage before we go. Uh, of the, the, the reason that we moved the polar bears, the percentage of the grizzly bears is, is 5%. You know, we were working on what our, our ideas might be in order to enhance the, the care of the grizzlies. The polar bears, the, that, that became a, a great option because of the reasons that we needed to move the polar bears in order to get them into a better breeding situation. Okay, so, so that was the primary. At very little effect... 
Yeah, that was the primary motivator. The, the benefit of that decision is that we're able to address this grizzly bear issue um, that, we've, that we've identified and that we had. We, we had this on our radar for some time that we've been continuing to make improvements and all the different things, and this gives us an even greater opportunity to continue to improve the care of those animals. Brianna Cohn, Senior Vice President for Animal Care and Conservation at the Denver Zoo. Still to come, a mobile home memoir. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hey, I'm Jesse Witten from Colorado Public Radio's Open Air and one of the hosts of our brand new podcast, The Playlist League. What I love about this is it takes something as beautifully subjective and personal as music and makes it into a battle royale. It's a music conversation, but done competitively as we draft playlists song by song according to a theme each month. So if you like music discovery, bloodthirsty competition, or even just a fun, casual hang session with some fellow music lovers, check out the Playlist League from CPR's Open Air. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And I could read stories all day about Angie Cavallari's childhood. She grew up in Florida. Her family owned mobile home parks with names like Placid Lakes, Pelican, and Chalet. Many of the mobile homes were rentals, so Angie had the sometimes filthy job of cleaning up after tenants. The job was especially filthy if they'd been evicted and purposely left a place in shambles. But Angie also developed close ties with the residents. She now lives in Denver, and her new book is called Trailer Trash, an 80s memoir. Angie, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks so much for having me. You're so careful to point out that no one in the mobile home park business uses the term trailer. Yet you call your book Trailer Trash. Yes. Why? Well, there was two reasons. It was literally trailer trash. It was one of the jobs that I had in addition to snaking toilets and mowing lawns. But um, Was to remove trash from... The mobile home park. Yeah, it was it was waste management services. We did that ourselves. My parents in Chapter 10, um, the title is actually waste management. <laughs> and my parents did not want to pay those fees. So me, my brother, my sister, and my mom all picked up trash, like went to these metal trash cans and took the trash out. So it wasn't just it wasn't just taking out the trash. It was taking it all the way to the dump. This is literal trailer <laughs> trash. Yes. And what would you find in that trash that maybe gave you some insight into the residence? Um, well, you try not to look. Um, most of the time you held your nose and you try not to look too closely at the trash. I only really noticed it if they never used a bag. Some people would throw old food, um, old pans of grease that are caught on fire directly into the trash can. No bag, nothing. It drove me crazy. <laughs> okay, so that's one reason you use this term yes. trailer trash. What's the other one? Well, I think the other reason it would be, and I, I didn't mean it to be a negative connotation. In fact, I had a better understanding of how different people lived at different levels of society. So I had a better understanding of that. It was not meant to be derogative. It was just meant to be literal. But it was also to kind of shed light on the fact that maybe we should be treating these people a little bit better. It's a term that's been out there for a long time. You think that there's a lot of stigma around mobile home parks? Yes, I do. What is the stigma and contrast that for me with the reality. So I did just read a story a couple months ago. There's been some residents here that have been displaced. Yes, that's right. Many mobile home parks in Colorado mm-hmm. are sort of having to make way for other development. And this is a, a storehouse for affordable housing in, in the metro area and, and 
beyond. Yeah, and 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 I definitely I have nothing but empathy for what they're going through because a lot of the tenants that were in our trailer park as well, I mean, they didn't really have anywhere else to go that they could afford. So I, from that aspect, I I totally get their side of it. I don't think it's fair. There certainly should be some parameters in place to protect them so that they're not out of house and home because it's not easy when you're not making a decent wage to immediately find another place. Hey, you know, no problem. We'll just move over here. It's it's very difficult. Plus, it's in a different area where there's not a lot of other places to live, like Broomfield, Aurora, those areas. Mm. They're not as developed. They will be soon now that they're taking over this land. But the other side of it is, you know, as someone that had to do the lawn mowing and had to do the maintenance in the trailer parks, it would be nice if you did mow the lawn. <laughs> It would be nice if you maybe put your trash in a bag. Yeah, that would be great. That would have been nice for me. Especially if it's kids emptying. <laughs> oh, my God. I know. And they knew that. They knew me. They're like, hi, Angie. Good morning. I'm like, hi. Notice you didn't use a trash bag. <laughs> okay, let's talk about some of the tenants. I'm actually mm-hmm. going to have you read a bit from Chapter sure, 3, sure. where you describe a woman named Florence. Uh, yes. And she was actually, I want, I want to say she was probably my favorite tenant. She was just fascinating to me. So Okay. Yeah, you ready? I'm ready. Okay. This is Chapter 3, The Tenants. Perhaps the most memorable tenant I knew was Florence, and we were warned never to call her Flo or risk a backhand to the head. Her lot sat smack dab on the south side of her yard, and during the eight years that I lived there, I never saw her sober. She always seemed to be coming and going from her many trips to and from the liquor store or the local watering holes, much to my father's chagrin. You may have not heard her leave, but you always heard her return because she would take out the metal trash cans and stray cats with her 1970s pale blue rusted-out Cadillac. (laughs) On many occasions, my father decided to perform a more subtle intervention by filling her gas tank with water while she slept off the Colt 45. Florence had held a strange fascination for me and my sister. For starters, I could never figure out her age. She may have only been in her early 60s, but I would place her around 78 in booze years. And she wasn't the kind of sweet old lady who wanted to connect with children or keep butterscotch candies in a faux crystal jar for younger guests. Most days, Florence would proudly sport a halter top sans a brassiere and briskly march across her yard in crudely trimmed cut-off jeans, her cheap flip-flops flailing off her feet and her sagging breasts bouncing in cadence to her determination to find an escape through a good time. Why was she her favorite? Um, well, you know, you have to understand, I mean, these these mobile homes or trailers, they, they don't, I wouldn't even call it a yard. It's more like a little side area, mm. you know. So to say that she was in my yard, I mean, she wasn't just my next door neighbor. I mean, she was she was part of my life. I mean, we shared a yard, if you want to call it a yard. So she was, she was just a different person. Um, she didn't, she just seemed angry all the time, but she was so jovial when she left. So she was heading to the bars and she really was trying to escape life. I mean, she wanted nothing to do with anyone. She wouldn't make eye contact. Um, she would just go straight to her car. And I always wondered how different or how much of a good time she was having because she was so miserable whenever I saw her. But I knew she was having a good time because the other tenants would talk about her. So she would be, you know, she'd go to the bars and have a great throw down. I'm like, wow, she was, she had two lives. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Denver author Angie Cavallari. Her new book is called Trailer Trash, an 80s memoir. You know, these days there's a lot of cachet to the tiny house movement. Yes. There are TV shows about it. You see these tiny homes in architectural magazines. And I have to say, in our newsroom, we often contrast the 
the kind of hipster tiny homes mm-hmm. with the original tiny home, which is mo- <laughs> mobile homes. You know, one is vaunted. The other is so stigmatized. How much did you feel that stigma as a kid? Were you embarrassed? Very much. And uh-huh. in fact, I, I did not um, ever talk about where I lived. Very little. I mean, I just never wanted anybody to see my house. It was like, you know, Molly Ringwald, right? She was freaked out. She didn't want Blaine to see where she lived. <laughs> I mean, I, I went through great pains to hide that because I didn't just go to the local public school. I went to private schools that were very, very far away with kids that were from affluent neighborhoods. So I didn't even have like a middle class, regular class. It was just going from pretty low on the totem pole to all of a sudden. I mean, everybody I went to school with had a lot of money. Did they ever find out? Yeah, I'm sure they did. I mean, you know, my parents, it was it was their business. So I'm sure they did. It was also your grandparents' business. Yes. yes. And they bought a mobile home park in a place, I guess, considered the Carney capital of the world. Mm-hmm. Carney, yes. those who are a part of carnivals. Mm-hmm. Presumably, this is where they lived when they were not on the carnival circuit. Correct. W- where is the carny capital of the world? Gibsonton, Florida. Gibsonton. And, it, and, it, and it, they actually gave themselves that name. So. Okay, I went down a rabbit hole <laughs> with Gibsonton. Did you? This is from Wikipedia. <laughs> so we, we have to be cautious, but it, it, some of this is confirmed by your book. Mm-hmm. Uh, quote, the town was home to Priscilla the monkey girl... <laughs> And the lobster boy, Siamese twin sisters, ran a fruit stand here. Uh, That's no longer the term of art, by the way, conjoined twins. Those aren't my words. At one time, Gibsonton was the only post office with a counter for dwarves. Hmm. Gibsonton offered unique circus zoning laws that allowed residents to keep elephants and circus trailers on their front lawns. And I think you witnessed this. Yes. Um, And at least on our street, it was a Ferris wheel. And it was a true story. He had a Ferris wheel. My neighbor did. In fact, I talk about in my second book, which I'm working on right now. Um, and I actually played spin the bottle for the first time behind a Ferris wheel that you would have seen at any carnival. Parked in front of a mobile home. Yes. What a strange and wonderful childhood. <laughs> I think it's partly why I enjoyed so much reading the book. Uh, okay. Um, the subtitle of your book is an 80s memoir. Mm-hmm. 80s music and TV feature prominently I want to play something for you. Oh, boy. What you are witnessing is real. The participants are not actors. They are actual litigants with a case pending in a California municipal court. (laughs) Both parties have agreed to dismiss their court cases and have their dispute settled here in our forum, the People's Court. The People's Court. Why did this show feature so prominently for you as a kid? So in one of the um, chapters, I do talk about the evictions because we were we also played our own lawyers. So when you evict someone, it's a lengthy process. It's not like, hey, you haven't paid your rent in a month, like you're out. It takes a lot of time. You have to go to court. You have to prove that they haven't paid. Um, you have to try to collect and at least show that you have, you know, gone out, just in earnest, have asked for the money. So we You were, were living people's court. Yes, <laughs> Exactly. That's why my parents were drawn to it. I don't know if they got any legal advice from watching it, but we loved watching it because there were there were dog bites. There were people that would argue about non-payment, and so my parents really got involved. And that was one of the first reality uh, court shows, right? Yeah, with Judge Wapner. Judge Wapner. This is before Judge Million. That's right, and Doug Llewellyn. And we love Doug. Always Doug Llewellyn. Don't take the law into <laughs> your, your own, own hands. hands. You take them to court. <laughs> What lessons do you carry with you today that you learned 
growing up in mobile home parks? Well, I, I definitely, I, I still struggle with where I fit in society, to be honest with you, because when you're raised in that environment, but you're going to these schools and you see two different worlds, you, you're not sure where you fit in. And I still don't know where I fit in. I mean, I live in the suburbs today, and that's not a sacrifice for my children, but I still don't feel like I fit in there either. I don't think I ever will. But the one thing I took away from was humanity. I mean, these are people. These are not just... Um, you know, in some situations, it's not that they just fell on hard times. Yeah, maybe they chose that, but they weren't lazy or there's not the stigma that they don't care about where they live. Um, and I think that's kind of lost when people think of, um, you know, lower on the totem pole in society or people that live in mobile home parks or trailers. Um, and I don't want them to, I don't want people to look at them that way. It, it gave me a lot of humanity and understanding. Do you think that your experience in the mobile home parks was similar to your siblings? Do you talk about it and kind of compare stories? Um, unfortunately, I'm estranged from my family. Um, I I go into more detail on that in the second book um, than I do in the first one. Hmm. So I, I will tell you that growing up, their attitude was also that they were very embarrassed as well. Um you know, because, again, I mean, it, it, it was not – this was not a retirement community like my grandparents owned. They had more than one trailer park. This was – this. these were not retirees. These were not what you think. These were not nice old ladies with bow crystal jars, you know, with candies. It just wasn't that environment. So. But there is that environment of Christ Among Mobile Home Parks. There is. And, yeah. and my one of my grandmother's trailer parks, I loved it. It was full of retirees. And, you know, they loved kids. They didn't see their grandkids that much. And they were snowbirds. And, yeah, they were fantastic. And I saw – and I actually saw two different worlds in the casing of mobile home parks. It was wild. Thanks so much for sharing uh, your story with us. And indeed, you you end the first book, Trailer Trash, with a little bit of a cliffhanger. So more to come. Your family did eventually sell the parks. They did. And yeah. then we moved to Gibsonton as well. So, yay. <laughs> Carney capital of the world. Carney capital. <laughs> I could keep going down that rabbit hole. Angie, thanks very much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Denver author Angie Cavallari has written Trailer Trash, an 80s memoir, and we'll uh, hope to post an excerpt later today at CPR.org. That's the show for today. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters at CPR News in Centennial.